Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's been quite a week in Washington as the capital city welcomed Pope Francis. The 266th Pope is just the fourth to visit the U.S., the third to swing by D.C., and thousands of people crowded the streets to give him quite the rock star greeting. At one point, security guards plucked a baby from behind the barricades to get a kiss from the pontiff. Then there was the moment Francis beckoned to a five-year-old girl who was then carried over to receive a hug from the man who, according to Forbes magazine, is the fourth most powerful person on the planet. But most Washingtonians couldn't get anywhere near Pope Francis. Instead, they found some rather creative ways to mark this momentous occasion. Karen Turner hit the streets and brought us this audio postcard. The cardboard cutouts of Pope Francis are life-size, so they're about six feet tall, and they're particularly striking because they feature the Holy Father looking happy. He's got that gentle smile. I'm Brother Patrick Briscoe. I'm a Dominican friar assigned in ministry at St. Matthew's Cathedral. When people first saw the cutouts, they were often surprised. It's a pretty non-traditional way of communication, right? To get somebody to take a, a selfie with a cardboard cutout of the Pope. I think the reaction is surprising because what we're talking about is something deeper than deeper than a hashtag or something more than a selfie. It's a, it's a statement of meaning. You know, the Holy Father has really challenged people to think about the way that they live. So I'm drinking a uh, sweet baby Jesus beer. Uh, which is which is awesome. It's a chocolate peanut butter beer, and uh, really fitting, given the fact that the given the fact that the Pope is coming to to town. So, my name is Adrian. I'm a bartender at Brooklyn Pint, and we're doing a series of papal beers to celebrate his arrival. The most popular beer right now is definitely the No Pope to Brooklyn. I, I like the uh, even more Jesus beer. That's my favorite one. I would probably say all of the the Trappist monk themed beers, like Saint Bernardus. La Trap and uh, the Blushing Monk. The Blushing Monk. We're definitely here to kill time and you know be nursing hangovers when we go to mass. That's the plan. So I just got into the bookstore. I've only been here once before, and um, so I noticed right away they have a Pope bobblehead. So that's totally what I'm getting. <laughs> I think you can't go without that. My name is Linda Ricks, and I'm from Tacoma, Washington. My name is Kevin Jones, and I'm the bookstore manager here at the Catholic Information Center. We have some keychains, buttons. We have a Pope Francis doll from the Philippines that's exclusive to us. And then here we have the bobbleheads, which have been our most popular item. I don't know if you can hear that. That's his, that, that's his head bobbing up and down. And these have just been super popular, like beyond what we had imagined. I'm going to get at least two. <laughs> Maybe more bobbleheads, but at least two bobbleheads, and, and uh, that'll be a great reminder for my friends. My name's Kareem Stewart at Ellis Woodfire Pizza down in uh, Penn Quarter, Chinatown. To commemorate the, uh, the Pope's visit, uh, we have a nice little uh, Pope cutout out front along with a, uh, our delicious Pope pizza. It has uh, ricotta cheese, mozzarella cheese, has uh, marinated yellow tomatoes. It's designed because of the uh, colors of the, of the Vatican itself, like the yellow, the gold white and that kind of thing. The cutout, we're asking people to come by and take selfies, fun selfies, or even if you just want to, you know, take get your little piece of the Pope, let's say, you know, just put your arm around him, take a picture. You know, it, it's definitely a, it definitely draws a crowd, that's for sure. This audio postcard was produced by Karen Turner.
Among the spots Pope Francis visited this week was the leafy Northeast D.C. campus of the Catholic University of America. Catholic is the only school in the country overseen by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Pope Leo XIII established it by charter in 1887. A hundred years later, in 1987, the university found itself in the media spotlight. Defended Catholic theologian Father Charles Curran was prepared to defy Archbishop Hickey's order today by returning to the classroom at Catholic University. But as Andrea Rowan reports, Curran backed down. In After order to two decades of tenured professorship, Father Charles Curran was formally suspended from teaching by Archbishop and University Chancellor James A. Hickey. Sustained applause greeted Father Charles Curran as he entered Caldwell Hall this morning. Instead of staging a showdown over his suspension from teaching this semester by Archbishop Hickey, the controversial theologian explained why, in his words, he blinked and will not press this issue. Curran had been clashing with the Vatican over his relatively liberal views on sexual ethics since an event 20 years earlier, which Father Peter Mitchell calls a crucial and defining moment in the history of Catholic identity in the United States. Mitchell takes readers through this defining moment in his new book, The Coup at Catholic University. He recently spoke with me from Wisconsin, where he's a parish priest in the Diocese of Green Bay. Curran embodied a mentality that was very... uh typical of the time of the late 60s, that religious authority was in direct conflict with freedom, that dogma was the enemy of of free thinking, and that any kind of moral code was somehow hindering people from making free choices. And he claimed the right to teach in a way that challenged the tenets of the Catholic faith. And he, he ran into controversy with the bishops of the United States, who were the board of trustees of Catholic University, when they questioned his teachings. And they sought to dismiss him from his post in the spring of 1967. And when they informed him that at the end of the year his contract would be allowed to expire, he led a walkout of the entire faculty and student body of Catholic University demanding justice, demanding freedom, and saying that uh, he had the right to teach whatever he wanted because every professor, because of the principles of academic freedom, could not be in any way uh, interfered with by any outside authority, including, he said, the religious authority that oversaw the running of the mission of Catholic University. Another underlying tension in all of this, as you talk about in the book, is being Catholic versus being American. How did the two different sides believe that tension could be resolved? Yeah, that's a great question. The American experience is high value on individualism and on liberty, our, our foundation and the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution. And at the same time then, within the American experience, the presence of of the Catholic belief that we are called to obedience to certainly the scriptures, the Bible as the word of God, and to the teaching of the church as being inspired by God and guiding us to know what God wants of us. So that religious claim that any church makes, not only the Catholic church, but other churches, found itself in tension with with the American ideals of freedom, especially when in the 60s, that idea of freedom came to be equated with the right to dissent against religious dogma. Dogma came to be seen as the enemy of freedom. In in, in earlier generations, religious dogma had been seen as a guide. In the 60s, any kind of religious creed, including the commandments or the creed of the Catholic Church and other religious schools, came to be seen as an obstacle to freedom. So when, when Curran led his walkout and he was joined by the vast majority of the university faculty and, and students, there was one dean at Catholic U, Monsignor um, Eugene Cavan. He said, well, since we're all here uh, demonstrating for academic freedom, I'd like to assert in academic freedom that I'd like to be able to dissent from these dissenters. So Curran was dissenting against the church's teaching 
And Kavan asked, I, could I please have the freedom to dissent from you? And, and that was where he raised very difficult questions about you know, the real nature of freedom and whether being anti-dogmatic is really an expression of freedom. Because he said, if you're anti-dogmatic, is that a dogma? If you believe that dogma is the enemy of truth, are you perhaps yourself invoking a dogma? And then your argument sort of doesn't have anything to stand on. So Kavan believed that if we are to be a truly diverse culture, there needed to be the freedom and the right to express a religious creed, to say in a diverse pluralistic culture that I believe this, can you tolerate me? Can you accept me? And largely the answer was no. Kavan was ostracized by the majority of his peers at the time. He was dismissed from his deanship about six months later, and I go through the story in the book of how he was accused of being against freedom. And Kavan really believed that um, one is free to accept authority as something that helps people to find the truth and helps people to find freedom. That's where he and Curran disagreed. And in the end, it was Curran's interpretation that emerged victorious at Catholics. So I'm wondering, how did that victory play out at the school in the years that followed? And what effects are we still feeling and seeing at Catholic University today? I I will say from the get-go, I'm not an expert on the present status of Catholic University. My book is very much about the revolution in the 60s. But at the time of Curran's walkout, many other Catholic educators at other institutions joined together in a famous declaration called the Land O'Lake Statement, the presidents of Fordham University, Boston College, Georgetown, Notre Dame, St. Louis U., and other Catholic schools, made a statement together in the summer of 1967, emphatically telling the American bishops, the Catholic bishops, that they had no right in any way to interfere in their administration of their universities, and they had no role whatsoever in Catholic education. And the fallout of that has been that since the late 60s, Catholic universities often have teachers of theology who are openly dissenting from the Catholic Church's official teachings. And that's where Curran was successful in redefining the Catholic identity of Catholic universities and and also Catholic high schools and parochial schools, that they don't necessarily teach the Catholic faith. And that's become really the, the common experience of many, many Catholics in this country in the last two generations. So in this era, the era of Pope Francis, how do you see the ripple effects of 1968 playing out? I think that Pope Francis is calling the world to see that if we live faith authentically, we're going to help people, that we need to, to love our neighbor and reach out to others. Um, I think he'll, he is going to come to a Catholic church in this country that remains very much divided over moral questions. And that's largely the fruit of what happened with Curran and these debates of the late 1960s. What Curran called for, saying that the teaching of the church seems to be irrelevant today and we have to do more than just tell people to follow commandments. We have to reach out and show love and kindness. And I think Pope Francis seems to very much be giving the same message that we cannot reduce Christianity and Catholicism to a bunch of rules. We have to be filled with love of neighbor and we have to go out and witness to that. That was Father Peter Mitchell, author of The Coup at Catholic University. You can see photos from the events of 1967 and 1968 and hear Father Charles Curran reacting to his suspension 20 years later on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back... It's a medical condition often cited when people die in jail. But does it actually exist? You know what? I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. So for me to say one way or the other, I'm not a qualified to um, answer that. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up, an 80s electronic music star sets out to revitalize a Baltimore neighborhood. Sad though it is, everything that's been going on with the courts and the protests and so on, in a way that gives me an even better opportunity to use the arts to help the city recover. But first, we head to Alexandria, Virginia. That's where, earlier this year, a 37-year-old woman was arrested outside a Hertz car rental lot. The police booked her after she punched an officer. Natasha McKenna suffered from mental illness. About two weeks after her arrest, she got into a struggle with sheriff's deputies and died in the Fairfax County Jail. The official cause of death was something called excited delirium. But as Virginia reporter Michael Pope tells us, some medical professionals say this particular condition doesn't exist. And a word of caution, this story contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Since the death of Natasha McKenna back in February, Fairfax County officials resisted releasing video footage of the incident. The struggle is difficult to watch. 20 minutes of fighting between a naked 5'4 woman with schizophrenia and several deputies in outfits that resemble hazmat uniforms. It begins just as soon as they open the door. You promised you wouldn't kill me. I didn't do anything. You promised you wouldn't kill me. I didn't do anything. Those are the last words spoken by Natasha McKenna. Ma'am, stop kicking. Stop kicking. Taser! Taser! The deputies shock her with a taser four times and then. So, what killed Natasha McKenna? The answer to that question is complicated and it depends on who's answering the question. The medical examiner says she died of something called excited delirium. Dr. Mark DeBart of the American College of Emergency Physicians describes patients' behavior this way. They would be breathing very rapidly. They would probably be sweating. Uh, The sweating shows that they probably are very hot, possibly even with a fever. And as a result, many of them tend to remove their clothes or are sometimes found running naked in the street. DeBard led a task force that examined cases of excited delirium several years ago. They won't be able to sit still. They'll be racing around, shaking. They seem like they should get tired, but they don't. And they also seem to have an extreme and unusual amount of strength for their uh, size or body type. Once you see that, you should be suspecting a patient with excited delirium syndrome. The problem is that excited delirium is not recognized by the American Psychiatric Association. That means it doesn't appear in the DSM-5. That's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the industry standard. As a result, many reputable medical organizations don't recognize excited delirium as a diagnostic term. People exhibiting this so-called syndrome frequently will be restrained by law enforcement. That's Dr. Jeffrey Metzner, a member of the American Psychiatric Association and a forensic psychiatrist. It's not uncommon to see an officer, not intentionally, but 
placing a knee on the person's back during the restraint process, which will compromise their ability to breathe because it restricts the person's ability to use their diaphragm. Metzner says these are the kind of conflicts that lead medical examiners to cite excited delirium. A recent study by Amnesty International found that excited delirium was used in 75 out of 330 deaths following the use of a taser by law enforcement officials between 2001 and 2008. Justin Mazzola is a researcher with Amnesty International. I'm not sure if there's any collaboration between medical examiners and law enforcement to use this diagnosis more routinely in these types of cases, but it definitely seems to be um, one of the larger causes of deaths in the case of individuals dying after a taser. So why did the medical examiner's office cite a cause of death that's not recognized by the American Psychiatric Association, a term that does not appear in the diagnostic manual? The medical examiner's office declined to be interviewed for this story, and Sheriff Stacy Kincaid says she doesn't have much of an opinion on the issue. You know what? I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, so for me to say one way or the other, I'm not a qualified to um, answer that as, a, as an expert. Kincaid's Republican opponent in the election for sheriff, Brian Wolf, takes a different position. And it's a catch-all if you can't find the real reason. Excited delirium and determining that was an accident when you have the use of a taser. I just don't, I just don't understand that. Fairfax County Commonwealth's attorney Ray Morrow issued a report concluding that Natasha McKenna did not die because of the taser shocks, although he did not respond to several requests to be interviewed for this story. Justin Mazzola at Amnesty International says the taser shocks may have been more of a reason for Natasha McKenna's death than the official version of events suggests. More study needs to be done, more analysis needs to be done on these cases, and that's why we're calling for medical examiners to not necessarily just rule out the tasers and just cite excited delirium. Although the prosecutor cleared the deputies involved, the story is not over yet. A federal civil rights investigation is still ongoing, and this November, voters will decide if they want Kincaid to keep her job. I'm Michael Pope. turn now to prisons in Maryland. Turns out correctional institutions in the old line state have some of the highest rates of violence of anywhere in the country. From 2001 to 2012, these facilities saw three times more killings inside prison walls compared with the national average. That's according to a 2015 U.S. Justice Department report. Four years ago, out of all the prisons in the state, the one with the highest rate of assaults on staff and inmates was Maryland Correctional Institution Hagerstown. But that's no longer the case. Why? Well, officials say one big reason for the change is the introduction of something new into the prison. Dogs. Not growling German shepherds on patrol, but Labrador puppies trained by inmates. As Maryland reporter Matt Bush tells us, these canines are on their way to becoming aid dogs for military veterans. Graduation ceremonies in gymnasiums with poor acoustics are very common, but ones where the graduates show off their skills at opening refrigerators and file cabinets or picking up credit cards and handing them over to clerks are not. Again, you'll notice that she keeps her eyes on the pot at all times. Fabulous insistence. 
But at this state prison in Hagerstown, this has been happening for the last four years. Our prison programs in Maryland are outstanding. Sheila O'Brien is with America's Vet Dogs. Through the group, inmates at 10 prisons in three states train puppies to become aid dogs for veterans. Maryland is home to four of those prisons. An inmate handler can really focus on the training of the puppy. He spends 24 hours a day with that puppy, and that's his job. That's his main focus, his job. Your day-to-day -day all day is your dog. I mean, we, I wake up in the morning at 7 o'clock, i got to take him out, feed him, and at the last time I break him in the evening, it's 10 o'clock at night. That's James Dyson. He grew up in D.C., but was living in Prince George's County when he was arrested for numerous crimes, including carjacking and robbery. He has been training a black lab named Hooper for the last six months. I really didn't know how much love you can get from their training, but I think it's... It's all positive reward based and, it's, and you build a relationship with the dog where the dog actually wants to do the commands and wants to do the things you ask for because they just generally are driven by making you happy and trying to please you. Count Dyson, among those who feel the presence of the dogs, is made for a more peaceful prison. Just seeing a dog typically connects a person to childhood memories of their own dogs. You, you wouldn't believe how many people say, oh, I had a lab growing up, or when I was younger, I had a, a Rottweiler. And just those happy thoughts associated with their own pets normally transfers to them seeing our service dogs and wanting to pet them and play with them. Another of Dyson's dogs graduated this day, his third. <sighs> it's a mixed emotion. I think the closest comparison you can probably give it to is similar to what parents go through when you send a child off to college or you know that they're prepared, you know that they're ready, but at the same time you always have that personal feeling of knowing you're going to miss them. For Terry Dorsey, whose latest pupil is a golden retriever named River, graduation day is even tougher. My first dog, I cried. I hate to, I mean, it's sad to say. And I said I wasn't going to cry, but my first dog, I cried. And I really feel real sad about my second dog. It's a really sad day because, this, to me, that's my best friend. Dorsey is a veteran, having served as an engineer in the Army. So being in this program is extra special for him. I can remember my first time when we first opened this program, I talked to the guy who was a veteran of Afghanistan and um, of the Gulf War. And he said he appreciated what I do. I said, no, I, I appreciate what you've done. Sometimes words, it don't have to be words to be said to explain it. It's just a, it's just a feeling that you have of doing something for somebody that did so much for you. Both men hope to continue training dogs when they are released from prison. They feel the program has forever changed them. Terry Dorsey says it gave him a purpose he never had. I was selfish, man, when I was on the streets. I, I was using drugs, dealing drugs, and... I was just selfish, and uh, I never, it, it, I never showed compassion or empathy. Dogs taught Dorsey both. Even though I had kids, but I didn't, I didn't feel that bond like that. And it's sad for me as a father to say that, but my parents never really showed me that. But at the same time, I learned that through having a dog. That because that dog needs you. You, you, he can't do, he can't feed himself. He can't go to the outside and do his business by himself. You have to train them to do all that. Once the dogs leave the prison, they go to a kennel in New York where they receive final specialized training, which focuses on the specific needs of the veteran they will be living with. The dogs from the prisons are able to complete that training in half the time compared to those who received basic training somewhere else. I'm Matt Bush.
We head back to Washington now for a story involving the complicated relationship between Congress and D.C. Caught up in politics on Capitol Hill for almost a decade was a public health program aimed at getting clean needles to drug users in the district. And people like Maurice Abbey Bay, a volunteer with the needle exchange program in D.C., found that situation problematic. Because if you're addicted to injection drugs such as heroin or cocaine, getting high can take precedence over everything. Users will cook drugs with whatever they can find. Yeah, people using rainwater, creek water, you know, that's other bacteria that they affect in themselves with. I've seen it. And the thing becomes real desperate when they have drug habits. Needle exchange programs have helped cut down on such desperate and dangerous behavior, and they've helped stop the spread of diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. But until recently, no one really knew how effective needle exchanges in D.C. have been since they were implemented in 2008. So, as Lauren Ober tells us, a researcher at George Washington University decided to find out. Before we hear about the new findings from Monica Ruiz, an assistant research professor at GW's Milken Institute School of Public Health, it's important to understand a little history. In 1998, Congress banned the use of federal funds for needle exchange programs on the theory that they could encourage drug use. But local municipalities could still use their own money to pay for such initiatives. Well, except the district. D.C. is not a state, as we know. And is also controlled by Congress. So this policy that went into place by Congress did not allow D.C. to even use its own municipal revenue to support certain exchange activities in the district. But in 2007, Congress lifted the D.C. ban and allowed the district to use its own funds for syringe exchange. So when the ban got lifted in the end of 2007, in 2008, Mayor Fenty allocated $650,000 to the Department of Health to start a network of syringe exchange providers. And so we went from one provider to four providers that were providing a more comprehensive package of harm reduction services and healthcare services to this community. The question I had was, will this have an impact on new HIV infections? Can you give me the lay of the land of the HIV situation in the district at present? HIV situation in the district at the moment still is in the state of a generalized epidemic, which means that there's over 1% of the population that is HIV infected. And when we think about how small the district is, it's quite significant. Injection drug use is the third cause of infection in the district preceded by male-to-male sex and heterosexual sex. So what you found is that in these two years, in 2008 to 2010, There were 120 new cases of HIV prevented and roughly $44 million saved. Tell me how you arrived at those figures. In the two years from the time that the ban was lifted, we saw a final count of 176 HIV infections. Modeling out what would have been had the ban remained in place, we would have expected 296. So that's a difference of 120 infections that we are not seeing. So when we think about the cost of treating HIV, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing that HIV is now considered a chronic disease, but it's still not cheap. So we wanted to figure out what does this mean in terms of money? And so we used the the estimates that we had in terms of lifetime costs of treating HIV. Those are from the CDC, a study published in 2010. 
And they estimated that it would be $380,000 per person over the lifetime to treat HIV infection. So if we take that $380,000 per person and multiply it by 120 people who would have needed treatment but now don't, when we subtract out the operating cost for syringe exchange services, we're left with a net of $44 million. That's a tremendous amount of money saved in two years. But I'm guessing there are probably other benefits of a needle exchange program. Can you explain some of those? Needle exchange programs are some of the most simple and elegant programs that exist out there for HIV prevention among injection drug using and other substance using populations. The premise is simple. To help people stay safe from injection-related harm, give them new needles so that they're not reusing needles. Get the contaminated needles off the streets, have people use clean needles every time so that they stay safe. Not only does this help prevent bloodborne infections such as HIV and hepatitis C and hepatitis B, but it also is helpful to prevent abscesses and injection-related injuries, which if anyone has seen those, those are not pretty but it gets better. What's wonderful about syringe exchange programs is that they're often able to provide other very, very critical health care services, such as HIV testing, HIV education, condoms for people when they want to have sex, screenings for hepatitis C, referrals to HIV care for people who test positive, referrals to drug treatment for people to go to when they're ready to quit. So what is the overall takeaway of your study? The main message is this, needle exchange saves lives. It is a comprehensive service for a very vulnerable population that we need to have. It saves lives, it saves money. We need to have this in the district and hopefully policies will remain such that we can keep it in the district as well as in other places in the country. That was Monica Ruiz of George Washington University's Milken Institute School of Public Health talking with Lauren Ober. In a minute, the 1980s pop star working to make Baltimore a destination for up-and-coming filmmakers. I hope some of those super-talented students who are still in high school will be clamoring to get into the film center in Station North a few years from now. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. In just a bit, what's it like to make music for the Pope? We get the inside scoop from the choir of the Basilica of the National Shrine. I knew that I wanted to keep it simple because I wanted it to reflect what Francis would evoke with his very presence. But first, you may know Thomas Dolby from his 80s pop hits, She Blinded Me with Science and Hyperactive. He also pioneered the software behind polyphonic ringtones. He developed an online game based on names and places in his music. How did I come to be on this desolate beach? And he's composed soundtracks for TV shows, games, and movies, including his own documentary, The Invisible Lighthouse. I live at the edge of the world. Time 
time stands still here, but the sea has plans of its own. But these days, the 56-year-old, bald-headed, bespectacled Brit... How's it going with the music? ...is making a name for himself in an entirely different way. Over the course of today, we've made a lot of really good decisions, especially with, like, the big reveal. Okay. ...as the first Homewood Professor of the Arts at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Show me something you like. We're inside the new Johns Hopkins MICA Film Center, where film students from Hopkins and recording arts students from the Maryland Institute College of Art are using raw movie footage, music, and sound effects Dolby's provided. some sound effects for atmosphere. And crafting their own version of a scene from a feature film. Just, just pause it there a minute. That all worked great, except this music disappeared a little bit too abruptly before the yeah. doorbell. Mm-hmm. You should find like a natural ending to the music oh, gotcha. if you can. But, you know, another possibility there would be that you actually, the doorbell sound is what kills the music. It's part of Sound on Film, the course Dolby's teaching here at the Film Center in Baltimore's Station North neighborhood, inside what was once the majestic Art Deco Center Theater. Before class, Professor Dolby strolls me around the facility. Yeah, show us around. Which opened on North Avenue just in time for the fall semester. And what did this look like before? Ah, well... In the days when North Avenue was the hopping place on a Saturday night in Baltimore, you would come here to go to a show. But when I first saw it a couple of years ago, there were shrubs growing out of the bricks. I mean, it was completely derelict. And so it was gutted, and um, all of these floors were put in. And Hopkins and Micah have taken over this second floor. Tenants on the first and third floors include a computer game developer and various nonprofits. Hopkins and Micah spent $10 million to build up and lease the 25,000-square-foot second floor, which includes editing suites, screening rooms, classrooms, sound studios, and a two-story soundstage. At one point during its life, this building was a radio studio, and they actually had their own soundstage in here. And so we have re-soundproofed it, put up a green screen and a psych, and so you could shoot a TV show or a feature film in here with no problem at all. In fact, Dolby hopes to create a TV show about Station North, known in recent decades for its beat-up commercial buildings, vacant row houses, and crime. But 13 years after Maryland designated it Baltimore's first arts and entertainment district, Dolby describes Station North as an incredibly vibrant place. Artists get a tax break to live here. And if you go into some of the venues, the clubs and pubs, there's an amazing vibe happening. So I would like to make a magazine show and I'd like to construct it around a course so that the students themselves can be involved in researching, producing, shooting, and then looking for distribution channels. So in addition to expanding Hopkins' film program beyond its traditionally academic focus... We never really had the facilities until now to actually teach students real-world skills. Dolby wants to use the Film Center to bring more attention to Station North and help transform it into what university administrators have called a Silicon Valley for the arts. I think the feeling all around is that this building and a couple of other projects in the area can really push the neighborhood sort of over the edge in terms of bringing it back to some of the splendor it had, you know, 80, 90 years ago. One of those other projects will bring middle schoolers to the film center after class and teach them to create their own loops, beats, and music videos. This, for a 12 or 13-year-old, would be a fantastic way to use their afternoon, especially because, you know, so many of the city schools have sort of narrowed down their focus to core subjects, and so things like the arts tend to go by the wayside. 
Another project in the works will help local ex-offenders make films documenting their personal stories. I would just love it if all of humanity that's out here in the streets looks at this building and rather than view it as yet another gleaming university edifice that they can't go near, that they really have a stake in the building and that it can have a positive effect on the community and on the revitalization of Station North. And sure, Thomas Dolby knows this kind of revitalization can be complicated. People will get displaced. People will be complaining about the rent and all the rest of it. And those are all things that anybody developing in the neighborhood has to take into account. Especially, he says, if that anybody is a relative newcomer who, until his recent move to Fells Point, was splitting his time between the west coast of the United States and the east coast of England. I don't want to steam in here like the expatriate Brit who thinks he can come in and immediately come to grips with the neighborhood. I'm learning all the time. So I spend as much time as I can in Station North talking to people. And I'm trying to make sure that anything that I initiate here makes sense really for the neighborhood. Lucky for him, he knows a thing or two about initiating. Whether in music, tech, or film, Thomas Dolby has based a three-decade career on innovating the next big thing. And in Station North, he'll get to see what happens when that next big thing is a neighborhood and the new generation of students who flock there to learn. Before I came to Baltimore, I only thought of Johns Hopkins as a medical institution. It's not really known as a film school, but I want to change that. I want to help change that. And I think that the draw of the neighborhood that we're in will be considerable. I think it's going to attract a different type of student. And I hope some of those super talented, creative uh, students who are still in high school will be clamoring to get into the film center uh, in Station North a few years from now. You can see photos of Professor Thomas Dolby in action on our website, metroconnection.org. And while you're there, you can listen to an outtake from this story as Dolby describes why he initially felt he might be underqualified for this new gig at Hopkins and why the university thought he might be overqualified. Again, it's all at metroconnection.org. We head back to D.C. now for a story about efforts to assist those in need. One approach governments, community groups, and researchers have used to lift people out of poverty focuses on the household. So you don't just help a poor child at school or a parent in a job training program. You focus on the needs of the whole family. Another method is to target resources at a neighborhood. A third strategy combines these two. And that's what's been happening in Washington, D.C., through a partnership between a health clinic and a school that teaches both young children and adults. Armando Truel visited the campus on Georgia Avenue and brings us this story. Okay, Yanira, can you share one sentence? I was so About a dozen immigrant women are learning about Microsoft Word at the Bria Public Charter School in the district. Adult students here learn practical skills such as computing while they learn English. Christine McKay is Bria's executive director. When we started 20 years ago, there was a large influx of immigrants into Washington, D.C. Those immigrants came from Central America and Vietnam. They were poor and disconnected. And they were coming with very little knowledge of U.S. culture and how to even function within Washington, D.C. McKay says today's Microsoft class is a far cry from when Bria first began working with immigrant families because the needs and aspirations of those families have evolved since 1989. Annabelle Cruz embodies those aspirations. A few years ago, she got her high school diploma through Bria. 
And then I became a medical assistant too, because I immediately I enrolled into that program that the school provide. And while Cruz was going to school at Bria, in a classroom down the hall, her children were attending preschool. That's why the school is different. That's why this is unique school, because my children were next, to, next door learning to. Cruz says her children, who were now in elementary school, benefited from being introduced to education at a very early age. Now I don't have any problems with them, like doing homework or reading books. Cruz and her children's educational journey with Bria actually started here. The waiting room at Mary's Center, a community clinic that shares space with Bria. My social worker uh, refers me here because I was uh, in a depression, postpartum depression. All of the families with children at Bria are also getting medical services from Mary's Center. This partnership between the community clinic and school began in 1998. Over the years, an integrated curriculum was developed. It includes early childhood education, parenting, adult education, and referral services for health needs. The model has piqued the interest of researchers such as Stuart Butler. We've been very interested in looking at examples of where um, health care and education have kind of come together to solve uh, general problems in a, in a community. Butler is a senior fellow at Brookings. He recently published a paper analyzing the Bria Mary Center model. It's very important to look at, at two generations, at both the children and their parents, particularly when the parents face any challenges like command of English, literacy, or financial literacy, and really to try to bring them together and to see them as a unit. By treating families as a unit, the clinic and school jointly address the family's interrelated challenges, says Butler. So one of the things that they do very well is to bring all these elements together, uh, dealing with the issues that the parents face, health issues, parenting issues, and so forth, at the same time as they're dealing with the children. And that's what really makes that uh, household more likely to succeed over the long haul. Butler says Bria students perform better than other D.C. early education and K-12 through schools. Mary's Center was in the top 25% of all federally funded healthcare clinics nationally. However, assessing the effectiveness of the combined model is challenging, explains Butler. Because, for example, you'd really want to have data that followed the parents and the, and the child for several years thereafter. And that takes money. And that takes money, and it takes organization of the data. And so they have to choose between that and serving more people. That's right. And they also are, there's a dilemma too, in that they need certain kinds of information and data, and it all costs money, for their operations to actually kind of fine-tune what they're doing every day. Butler says those metrics are needed to show the Bria Mary Center model is worth replicating in similar communities. But while those esoteric points are pondered in glass and ivory towers on K Street, on Georgia Avenue, children and parents, such as Annabelle Cruz, are becoming healthier, better educated, and more resilient. And I get uh, something that I never think is going to happen in my life. I always have a lot of doubts on my future, but the school helps me to set up goals and I, how to reach them. Bria, by the way, means to shine brightly in Spanish. I'm Armando Trull.
This week, after President Obama shook hands with Pope Francis. Holy Father, on behalf of Michelle and myself, welcome to the White House. And after the Pope greeted fans. Pontiff made his way across the city to the Basilica of the National Shrine in Northeast Washington. That's where some 25,000 people were waiting to hear his first mass in the United States. Also waiting were hundreds of musicians, including reporter Matthew Schwartz, who sings tenor in the Basilica's choir. And Matthew joins me now to talk about what it was like to make music fit for a pope. Matthew, welcome. I'm delighted to be here. So I want you to start by painting a picture of the scene when Pope Francis arrived. I mean, the Basilica at Catholic University is the largest Catholic church in the United States, and I understand thousands of church officials were in attendance. So take us back to that moment. So there were hundreds of singers outside and 24 professional singers in the Shrine Choir, which I'm a member of, inside. And we were all waiting for the Pope to arrive. And where I was sitting in the choir inside the basilica, I couldn't see anything because they had monitors for the crowd, but the musicians, we were kind of in the back. So all we could do was hear the outside. So imagine being inside a building when outside there is a a rock concert and the Beatles are performing and you hear the crowd and they are going wild and they're screaming and they're crying and it's incredible, but you can't see it. And not being able to see it actually sort of heightened the anticipation because we knew that after the Pope made his way around the grounds, he was going to come inside the Basilica, and that's when we would be able to sing for him. When the Pope finally arrived in the Basilica, there was about a minute or two of of silence and waiting as the Pope was making his way in. And then we heard a rumble from the back of the crowd. And it just erupted. It was it was incredible. When the Pope walked through the door, the fanfare began, the brass fanfare. And then as the, the Pope walked forward, we all erupted in song. Um, the moment he walked up the steps and turned and greeted the crowd corresponded precisely with the moment in the music that it crescendoed and we sang a fortissimo amen and we could not have planned it better it was absolutely perfect i just got chills i'm still getting chills <laughs> i'm still getting chills thinking about it i've been rewatching the video of it um all night all day That moment you just talked about where the Pope facing the crowd corresponded exactly with your amen, did you plan that? Well, we tried. We didn't exactly know, but the associate director of music at the Shrine, Ben LaPrairie, put a lot of thought into exactly how to compose the piece to try to make sure that it lined up exactly with the Pope's procession. If it were a regular Mass and a procession is just going forward, the procession would walk, you know, at a at a stately pace. Pope Francis may do that, and in that case, we've calculated you would need about two minutes and thirty seconds of music. But he also may stop and turn to shake hands with someone. He may turn to hug someone. He may turn to kiss someone's baby. 
with this particular piece, coming up with a way to compose it that will allow for these different possible variations in the amount of time was a particular challenge. Matthew, what sorts of other considerations go into creating music for the Pope and getting ready to perform it? We were saving our voices for the actual Mass. During all the rehearsals, you could tell that everybody was holding back just a little bit because we only get a certain number of high notes. Some instruments get a lot of high notes. If you're on a piano, you can you can hit A all day. But brass, for instance, and especially for vocal musicians, we don't get an unlimited number of A's. So we've got to ration them and we've got to save them. And we saved them for the Mass. One last thing I want to ask you, Matthew. You sang for the Pope this week. You're part of this choir. But I understand you're not actually Catholic. I've been singing in the choir there for about seven years now. And after the first or second year, during a choir Christmas party, the head of the church came up to me and he said, you're Jewish, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am. And he asked me, how, as a Jew, can you sing about Jesus every week? And I said to him, you know, hundreds of years ago, these composers that we sing sat in a room by themselves with ink and paper, and they put dots on a page, and their goal was to try to recreate the sound of heaven on earth. And so when I'm singing, I'm, I'm singing about Jesus, but what I'm thinking about is I'm trying to recreate the sound of angels. I am trying to create a little bit of heaven on earth. Reporter Matthew Schwartz sings tenor in the choir of the Basilica of the National Shrine. Matthew, thank you. Thank you. You can hear more of the choir's music on our website, metroconnection.org. Where there is discord, let me bring a chord. Where there is falsehood, only thy truth. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We'd like to welcome our new fall intern, Vera Carruthers. Great to have you with us. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past editions, subscribe to our podcast. You can find a link at metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.